Welcome to the People Analytics and Future Work Podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. And I'm extraordinarily excited to be with Dr. Michael Arena, head of talent at GM. Michael, are you there? I am, Al. How are you today? I'm doing outstanding. And I Good. am doing outstanding because we're finally getting this done. I mean, you come <laughs> to our conferences, you rock the world, people are standing up, you got them moving around, you got them thinking about new things. So, and you have a book forthcoming. So there's so many reasons for us to be talking. So if you would, uh, just introduce yourself and uh, yeah. Yeah, how you got into this thing called people analytics. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled we finally made this happen. Uh, I'm Michael Arena, so I am the chief talent officer here at General Motors, um, have been for in the better part of five years. And, you know, in that time frame, have really implemented and focused on, you know, evidence-based HR practices and people analytics to be more specific. And, you know, you and I have engaged in many, many conversations, you know, over those years around how to lift this field up and sort of take it to the next level. You know, with that in mind, you have trumpeted the value of organizational network analysis and how it uh, creates agility and it creates awareness uh, among leaders as well as employees themselves. Can you talk a bit about, you know, why now, why this book, you know, why is it time to, to push the envelope you know, in the field? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, from an analytics standpoint, you know, just, you know, sort of from a principle perspective, you know, we we always try to start from a problem-centric place of analysis as opposed to just, you know, touting a new tool and looking at new concepts. So for me, you know, HR has been about human capital, uh, which it should be. Um, and continues to be. And we have done a lot of advanced work um, most recently around AI and certainly, you know, building predictive models. We've done it here. It certainly happened in the people analytics space more broadly. Uh, But I, you know, I've always been fascinated by the social capital space. And, you know, simply stated, you know, human capital is critical and essential to performance in organizations and yet, you know, inappropriate by itself or inadequate by itself. So, if you think about it this way, human capital is about what people know. It's about the experiences and depth of knowledge and or expertise that they have. And that's essential. If you don't have that, you know, you, you certainly cannot drive optimal performance in an organization, but it's not enough. If those people aren't properly positioned in the organization to leverage what they know, then it's incomplete. So for me, you know, ONA is a new lens, a new tool I mean, the tool's been around for a while, but it's a tool to be able to evaluate, you know, precisely what it looks like to see how people show up in an organization. Yeah, with that in mind, if you go back 10, 15 years, this whole notion of analytics was rooted, correct me if I'm wrong, in one of two ways. You know, either doing research to study a dynamic on an event-driven basis or uh, beyond that aggregating data and visualizing it in a variety of platforms. But now we have all these tools by which we can collect data more uh, quicker, more appropriately, Mm -hmm. and and so forth. So what made you elevate ONA to, okay, this is a priority for us versus all the other things that we could do? 
Yeah, well, we are doing a lot of other things as well. Um, I think the reason this one has gained you know tremendous traction inside the company is because we live in a very different time. You know, it's again, as I mentioned, no longer about just hiring the smartest people. If you can't move, if you can't move fast, if you can't be agile as an organization, you know, the the best answer isn't enough. Um, you've got to be able to get to implementation and impact sooner. And that's why ONA and or understanding the social dynamics inside of large complex organizations is so critical. Um, and it frankly helps us to get, you know, I guess the way I would summarize it is it helps us to get past the simple minded one size fits all solutions inside of organizations to much more elegant, um, precise solutions based on intention and need in the moment. Right. With that in mind, it prompts uh, me to go back to one of our conversations in New York, if I remember correctly, where you are passionate about enabling people to bring their whole selves to work and innovate and have safety, while also paying attention to the economics of the business. So it sounds like when you talk about social capital, getting people in the right place, you know, with the right workload and, and right resources and so forth. There's a humanistic aspect to it as well as an economic uh, aspect to it. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've, you know, we talked about the field of engagement for years, for decades inside of HR. And I think some of our knowledge and understanding is rooted in the history. So, you know, the old Gallup studies from many, many years ago, uh, said that, you know, 20% of people feel like they can truly optimize and leverage their strengths inside of their workplace. So that means 80% of the potentials unseized, 80% of people's strengths are not being leveraged. So at the individual level, we all want to show up and make an impact. We all want to show up and be our best selves. Now, at an organizational level, you know, you know that impact is even greater. Um, so at an organizational level, you know, you need to get, you really need to untap that potential. And that's, that's what we've done here uh, much more organically, um, you know, from almost a bottoms up groundswell perspective by thinking about intentional connections and more precisely, what are we trying to drive in any given moment? And with those intentional connections, this was driven again, correct me if I'm wrong, out of need because your industry is getting disrupted and getting disrupted fast. And so the need to innovate, the need to move faster and more effectively was there. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so um, so Mary Barra, when she took over as CEO of the company, uh, went on record as saying that the industry, the automotive industry will change more in the next five years uh, than it has in the last 50 um, she hasn't been in her role for five years, and I would argue that that's already happened. Um, so we have a choice, right? We can be, you know, a disruptor or the disrupted. Um, and one of the ways to activate on charging in and being bold while continuing to to stay focused on the core, which we also do, is to you know think about um, how do we go outside and discover. You know, so I oftentimes talk about the four Ds. Uh, you've heard me talk about the four Ds of agility, uh, which are four sets of intentional connections. And the first one is, you know, you can't be insular in today's world. You have to be sensing and constantly paying attention to what's happening in the outside world. And that's where discovery comes from. You know, the intersections 
of different parts of a network uh, come from discovery. And you know, we the research says that as many as 25% more insights can be you know, cultivated on those edges um, of an organization by, you know, looking out. But that's not enough because ideas are cheap, you know, and we, I don't know about you, but I have 10 new ideas every day. And by the end of the day, (laughs) maybe, by the end of the day, maybe one of them is is worth sharing with someone else. Um, And, you know, usually I don't do anything with that one. So, you know, as entrepreneurs, uh, as innovators, ideas are only the starting point. You've got to bring them into the world. And that requires development connections. That requires these very cohesive. So the first, discovery, requires what we call brokerage. The second, development, requires what we call cohesion. And that means that, you know, you and I as friends and three or four other friends together who trust each other will first share our ideas with each other. Uh, but then second, you know, bring them into the world, prototype them, you know, make them come to life, build them in some way, in such a way that we we sort of build up energy around them. And, you know, again, Amazon calls them two pizza teams. You know, these are these small, agile, fast, you know, iterative teams. You know, we might call them scrums at times in the in the development world, but that's not enough. I mean, yes, you can move fast. And Sandy Pentland says, you know, small cohesive teams can move up to 20% faster than, you know, the other more bogged down multidimensional teams. But at some point you need to get those ideas diffused, which is the third D. You need to get them propagated out of the pocket of innovation and you need to get them, you know, scaled and spread out across the organization. Uh, there was some good literature that says, you know, 43% more likely to have ideas rejected if they're developed in a microcosm. Um, Hmm. And if they're developed inside that little tight cluster. So that's where, you know, Rob Cross's work around energy really comes into play. And that is, you've got to get people to energize around those ideas and pull them out of the pockets and sort of diffuse them across the broader organization and his research says that you know if you can do that, you can get a four x lift on those ideas. And then finally, uh, just to rush through it, you know, the final connection is you've got to disrupt the current status quo, and that requires different sets of connections in order to bring in the new normal. So discovery, development, diffuse, and disrupt. And the last one is of particular interest to me because to your point, you know, many people have great ideas. Uh, they might even have a cohesive community where you know they'll get some yeses and then they try and bring it to life in a broader organization. Uh, how would you advocate the disruptions you know, take place in the ideal world? And I imagine there's a host of depends yeah. in that you know, response. You know, that being said, there has to be at least, hopefully anyway, some salient uh, lessons that you've learned over the years that can help bring ideas to life. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, that is the hardest move, right? The final move of disruption is the hardest, you know, organizations, both big and small, are have fortified themselves, you know, around the status quo. That's by the very nature of organizations. They design, you know, behaviors in. So they build up these brick walls, um, you know, fictitious brick walls. And it's at this point that you need to break them down in order to charge through. So that's the trickiest move. Um, and, and what I would say is it's really important that it's not the first. 
you know, most people, you know, my experience has been when people discover a new idea, when they have a great new idea, the first thing they want to do is get, you know, formal endorsement for that idea. They want to go get leadership approval. They want to talk to the highest person they can in the hierarchy and get a full budget and charge forward. And, and what I would suggest is that's premature. Uh, the idea hasn't been fully baked. The idea hasn't been pressure tested. The idea hasn't been, you know, sort of exposed to the broader system to where it can, you know, hit a fitness of use, if you will. Uh, and, and it's only once you've done all that and you've kind of charged into some conflict, which I can talk about in a little more detail in a moment, that, um, that you've got something that merits endorsement. And it's at that point that, you know, you, you start to think about, you know, who are my sponsors? Leadership is most critical in this final stage. Like the formal, typical, traditional type of leadership we think of is most critical in this final stage. And it's at that point that you go looking for a leader um, or you seed your network to help you find the right leader to sort of pull it through the brick wall, if you will. Got it. And I presume that leader needs a level of openness, a level of courage to actually adopt something that would be out of their their um, their norm. And maybe they're not the author of that. <laughs> um, so they would just have to you know, give credit and, and enable others. And that, yeah. I imagine that would be a challenge for some leaders, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a challenge on both sides. Um, it's a challenge for traditional leadership. You know, because they've got to lift up and support other people. It's also a challenge for creators because they've got to let go some degree of freedom around their idea. So where I have seen people struggle in, in this method that we have deployed is where people need to cling on to ownership every step through the process. Now, some degree of ownership is good because that's where you get conviction and energy. But, you know, clinging on to an idea for too long and not giving other people the ability to make it part of their idea is is also problematic. And I, I'll give you a real um, story. And we discovered this by mistake. Um, and I should have said all from the beginning that this whole journey for me started, I, I call myself a pracademic. Uh, you know, so <laughs> I love the academ I love academic it. research. You know, so I, I've studied networks theoretically for years. Um, and then I was interested in more precisely, why is it that some ideas pop in an organization and seemingly equally fit ideas do not? So we, a part of a small research team, all academics, uh, went out and analyzed, uh, now it's about 60 companies, uh, but in the early days, we were asking these questions qualitatively. And we were snowballing them back into the organization to try and understand what were the dynamics around healthy, good innovations that made it to the marketplace and, you know, also good ideas that didn't see the light of day. And it, it, this was an epiphany for us. Um, and we weren't, we did not enter into this under the network lens early on. Uh, but what we discovered was every time we would come and find a great idea, we would ask Al, you know, so Al, who else was engaged in that idea? And you would say, Hey, you need to go talk to Karen and Jim. And I go talk to Jim and Jim would say, you know, Michael, you need to go talk to to Bill and Sally. And, and it seemed like, you know, every time we would talk to people around the successful ideas, they would ask us to go talk to somebody else. Um, but yeah, whenever we asked the second question to every person we interviewed, we would ask this question. Could you tell us about an idea you liked almost as much, if not better than that one? And could you tell us who else was engaged in that idea? And they would say, you know, you got to go talk to Frank about that. 
And I go talk to Frank or the research team will go talk to Frank. And, and this is what would inevitably happen. First degree of separation from the person who told us about the idea, Frank would go into system rage. Um, and basically what <laughs> Frank would do is Frank would you know, just go nuts on the system. Yeah, that was my idea. It was brilliant. If these freaking idiots around this place would have just listened to me, I could have avoided all this pain and suffering and they would have been first to market on the, and would, you know, always explicit, you know, explicit those woven into the sentence. And, you know, it was almost always within one to two, you know, degrees of removal from the person that told us about the idea were the ideas that died. The great ideas continued to travel from co-creator to co-creator. So I, I share that to say this, you know, I truly believe that innovation is as much of a social phenomenon as it is a technological one. So, you know, our discovery in the early days, and then we were able to, to apply real, you know, solid methodology around network analysis. Our discovery in the early days is, you know, the way that good ideas pop has as much to do with the social fabric of an organization as it does, you know, the, um, the technical and intellectual fabric within an organization. And we have since called that concept and have labeled it adaptive space, um, which has, you know, which is really the environment that creates, you know, conducive environment for ideas to spread and flow. So elaborate more, if you will, on adaptive space, because you alluded to conflict uh, earlier mm -hmm. and, you know, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are there. And I also, you know, this notion of safety, psychological safety, uh, emotional yeah. safety, uh, obviously, as well as physical safety, you know, creating that space for people to take risk and, and so forth. Is that some of the notions that are captured in adaptive space? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you go back to the four Ds, you know, those are the, the four sets of different connections that you see when you have adaptive space in organizations. And I should say that those organizations that were repeatedly adaptive had adaptive space and those that weren't, you know, even though they had innovation deep in pockets, you know, like Frank's idea, um, they they didn't have, you know, what I'm about to describe. And, and I mean, simply stated, it's it's nothing you know, sort of earth shattering. It's the freedom for ideas and learnings to openly flow into and throughout an organization. Um, and we think about that freedom as, you know, the relational connections, the emotional connections, and even sometimes the physical space, you know, that exists in an organization. So, um, and those both have, you know, positive aspects to them and sometimes, you know, sort of challenging aspects to them, which is where conflict comes in. Can you speak more to conflict? I and mean, what does healthy conflict you know look like to you? Do you do you take time to define it and you know, a, appropriate pushback and you know how those uh, interactions you know should ideally you know take place where you're keeping somebody else in respect and, and dignity yet also you know asserting your own ideas? Yeah. So um, I oftentimes tell people beware if there's no conflict because you know you have to have something to break through if you want to break through. Right. And that's where conflict comes from. So if you're not, if you're not getting some degree of resistance, if you're not getting some conflict, you're probably not working on something very bold. Uh, so that, that's kind of the first caveat. Um, you know, I, I think the conflict is what makes ideas better. You know, it's easy to dream up ideas in the you know, sort of unreal world. But to get those ideas you know, adopted and morphed and iterated upon inside of an organization means that you need to pressure test them. And to pressure test them, they may work for my function or my business, but 
It may not work for the business next door to me or the function next door to me that needs to support it. So, you know, it's, it's part of this evolution process of an idea uh, to go from a single idea into a morphed set of ideas that create a grander concept. Um, and I guess I, I've got one metaphor and, and one real practice uh, illustration on this. You know, the metaphor that I oftentimes use about why is conflict important is because it gets you, it gets you quicker liftoff. And, you know, a Boeing 777, you know, needs, as I understand it, needs about 180 miles per hour of wind speed in order to get altitude, in order to get liftoff. Um, you know, so you can get that a couple ways. You could, you could wait until you reach 180 miles per hour, or you can fly directly into the headwind of 30 miles per hour and you get lift off at 150, which comes sooner. So, so the way I oftentimes like to describe conflict, you know, healthy conflict, you can, you can have conflict that is completely stifling as well. And that's not what I'm talking about, but healthy conflict and healthy tension helps you to get lift off sooner. Got it. And one of the things that I'm really curious about, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure you go into this in the book, but uh, you know, for our purposes right now, there's much to be said, um, at least colloquially, about critical thinking. Um, and by definition, it's almost looks for what's wrong as opposed to what's right. And if you want someone to energize ideas and push it through an organization, yeah, they might come in with a degree, a degree of skepticism, but they also are looking for what's right, I would think, and, and want an idea should they deem it worthy to accelerate and achieve it, its goal of coming to life. So is that something that you socialize and maybe even train on on how to be appropriately uh, you know, uh, critical, but also be compassionate and celebrate others? And, you know, it's so how and when. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but it's how and when. You know, so we again in, in the world are infatuated by one size fits all solutions. So we want what's the approach we should use or what's the process we should use. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. You know, it's, it's one size for this mode and another size for a different mode. So, so yes, we we spend a lot of time talking about conflict, and you know it is true that too much conflict could be detrimental. Um, it's also true that you know a certain amount of conflict later in the process you know really helps you to break through some of these brick walls that I described earlier. Um, so I want conflict in the I want some healthy tension. You know the discovery, the outside in look. You know in discovery. You know, has some healthy skepticism in it to say that you know the world is changing around us, and we've got to make a really big strategic decision on something about are we going to be disrupted or are we going to charge in and disrupt? Um, so there's a little bit of tension in the front end at the strategic level, but then when you're in development, you know there's it's it's about experimentation, it's about you know building some coalitions, it's about trust, it's about you know the tension begins to dissipate a little while you're in development. Um, but once you get to diffusion and you're trying to get something spread, it kicks back in again. And I, you know, so I think about tension and conflict, um, at different levels of intensity in different levels, uh, or different phases in the, in the flow, if you will. Got it. Love it. And, you know, you mentioned the, the world changing and I, I want to step back if uh, I may, cause I have a few more questions. Number one, the world 
is changing radically in the gig economy, automation, AI, all these things are disrupting the work experience. And Mm -hmm. arguably, innovations are not only coming from within an organization, they're coming from outside the organization, from startups, from partners, and so forth. So not only are we working within fellow employees, we're working Mm -hmm. with these third parties. I know most of your work has been with employees, uh, but as we go forward in the years ahead, how do you think this evolving dynamic is going to affect innovation, relationship equity, and, and, and things like that? Can you speak to that? Yeah, um, I, I can't get to the the various nuances of your question. I've got a perspective on it, but um, I, I don't think you can any longer think about an organization as being a separate entity. Um, and frankly, much of our innovation is happening in the outside world, you know, at the edges of what we would have traditionally considered our formal, you know, organization. So, so we are doing that, and I see many, many other organizations doing that um, as they're reaching out into the world and trying to, you know, broker relationships around, you know, different ideas, different concepts. Um, so I think those walls become far more amorphous than they've ever been. I think we've been feeling that for years. Uh, but it's going to become growingly uh, more complex and unclear. I think, you know, back within organizations, just for a moment, I think organizations are going, are going to become a little more bimodal. Um, and I think, you know, and again, I, I'm beating the same drum on this, but I think, you know, what it takes to compensate, encourage, reward, and incent people in the growth side, the entrepreneurial side of the business is a little bit different than perhaps what it will take to, you know, organize people in the core of the business. And and then there are all kinds of different iterations in between those two. So I, I think organizations are going to become more complex uh, with more sophisticated sets of management practices and solutions uh, to be able to do two things um, at the end of the day. And every organization needs to do these two things. And that is, you know, continue to focus on long-term growth um, while at the same time paying today's bills uh, and making yep. sure that, you know, for us, we're pushing trucks out the back door uh, and we're paying the bills of today. You know, that's critical. And you have to do that well. You have to do that precisely um, with great degrees of quality. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to have an eye on the future. And if the same people are always doing both of those things, you know, it, it becomes a challenge. So that's where, you know, sitting, sitting there and intentionally thinking about these connections. Um, and as you're cycling through them, thinking about what are you trying to deliver and create is so critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so given what you just shared, you know, how is this affecting the role of the CHRO or, or head of talent? You know, should we be looking beyond you know, how we're affecting not only the employee experience, but uh, yeah. our partners and who else is coming into our doors to, to do work with us? Yeah, yeah. I think it will have a significant impact on HR as a whole. Um, you know, I think, you know, we'll have to add the social in with the human. Um, and think about not just what happens, you know, when Al's thinking or Michael's thinking, but what's happening when we're thinking together. We oftentimes call that collaboration, um, but it's more than that. You know, there's there are times where we don't want to collaborate. There are times where we want you to be isolated and locked down. So I think, you know, it's going to have huge implications on things like org design. Um, you know, we're going to be thinking about organizations as being more liquid than static. Um, it's going to have huge ramifications on, you know, when people could and should travel across boundaries. 
Um, and I think at the theoretical level, that all makes sense. At the practice level, you know, that's where, you know, we'll see how this all unfolds. Um, and I think, you know, considering those management practices that, you know, create more openness and freedom for ideas and learnings to flow is going to be important. And then at other times, we need to protect, you know, parts of the organization to be able to deliver. And I think yes. knowing, you know, what are you trying to create at this point in time requires a whole different level of sophistication and different talents and skills. Yeah. Hey, you know, I've, I, I want to ask you a couple more questions. And since yeah. I, we don't have the you know, often get together, I am going to ask them uh, because you just prompted something that I know uh, both you and Rob have talked about. And that yeah. being the identification of key talent. So in historical performance management processes, they may or may not have highlighted the value of the individuals. So through uh, social analysis, you're able to identify, correct me if I'm wrong again, the critical contributions of people that might not be captured in a normal process. You know, again, am I replaying that back accurately? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, I think talent management 2.0, um, and this gets even more specific on your previous question, I think talent management 2.0 is going to be looking at what is your social position and not just what competencies that you have. Your competencies and experiences are predicated on human capital. Uh, your social position and your ability to get it leveraged um, has to do with your social capital. So we, we've got an assessment we use. Um, you know, I, we've continued to work on an assessment where we've got brokers. You know, brokers are bridge people. They reach across organizations. They reach across you know, groups within organizations. We've got central connectors. You know, central connectors are you know, people that get stuff done, executors, very central to a small team. They're great at delivering. Um, and we're even looking at the emotions that show up on the network. So we, we measure energy. We can you know, look at people who are energizers. They're fantastic at getting ideas pulled through and amplified inside of an organization. And we also you know, have a role that we have looked at um, around challengers. And they're the ones that you know, challenge the status quo, uh, challenge us to think about different things, but also you know, challenge the conventional wisdom of pulling new ideas into and through brick walls. Um, and so, so we think about those four roles and the combination of those four roles, you, you are not necessarily only one of those. Um, and we've you know, created some analytic tools to be able to help people identify who they are uh, and therefore you know, what they're good at. And they map back to those four connections. So based on your combination of role, you may know if you're better at discovery or development. Um, and then we educate, you know, so a lot of our curriculum, a lot of our development activities are focused on helping people to accentuate their strengths um, and then also recognize the traps associated with some of those strengths so that they can um, be very practical in, in how they charge forward. It's beautiful. I mean, it really puts a smile on my face. I think it needs to be um, more widely propagated for this simple reason. When leaders, when people in talent uh, talk about diversity and inclusion, they often are referring to protected classes and yeah. and uh, gender and, and so forth. And then we're not really looking at diversity of contribution or ways of being. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Is, is that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and we and we think about that across time. You know, you could be a broker in one role, um, and we may push you to be a central connector in the next role. And the the beauty of this is you you bring your relationships along with you. You know, so when you move on to the next role, those relationships generally come with you if you're in the same organization, and they continue to pay huge dividends. So, so from a talent management standpoint, we sometimes think about not just what what are the skills that this people bring, this person brings with them, uh, and are they capable of you know stepping into this job, but what are the relationships that they will bring with them as well? And I've got some really comprehensive case studies as to where we diffused innovation teams or where another company diffused innovation teams. And, you know, all of a sudden, since those ideas were diffused out into the broader organization, you know, ideas that weren't popping before started popping regularly because they, you know, these key believers were at different influencing points inside of the organization. So, uh, Ron Burt describes this, you know, as a, a concept that he calls oscillation and, you know, the beauty is, and this gets a little bit to diversity, you know, based on experience, at least, you know, the beauty of oscillating back and forth between brokerage and cohesion, uh, broker and connector is that, you know, you're continuing to bring relationships with you, that, which make you better at whatever role you happen to be sitting in at this point in time. That's fantastic. So as we wrap up here, tell us about the book. How can people learn about it and, uh, and get in touch with you? Yeah, so it's out um, mid-June. Uh, the, the title of the book, we've talked about this a little bit, is Adaptive Space, You know how General Motors and other companies are positively disrupting themselves to become more agile. Um, and if you want to, there's a website, so it will be on Amazon. It's there right now for pre-order. Um, and it's, there's a website, uh, which is also called adaptivespace.net, um, which is live and active. And I hope within the next you know, a couple of weeks that I will have a mini assessment up that talks a little bit about these roles and will give every individual the opportunity to do a bit of a self-assessment um, around how they may show up in both these sets of connections and which role they may or may not be predisposed to. Fantastic. Michael, congratulations on the work that you've done there at GM and on the book and everything that you're doing for the space. I mean, your thinking is, I mean, beautiful. I don't really have another word for it. I mean, it's inspiring. It's, it makes sense. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm stoked. And, you know, I appreciate your time today and for sharing. Thanks, Al. Thanks. I always, I always appreciate our dialogues and look forward to the next. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.